Welcome to the Pikes Peak Christian Church Sermon Podcast. Well, it is, it is so great outside. It's just gorgeous. Um, days like this, you walk outside, you take a fresh, fresh breath of air. It's cool. Birds are chirping. The sky's blue. Sunshine. Just, can it get any better than this in Colorado? That's one of the reasons why my wife and I, we came to interview um, at this church in Colorado. We came during the month of June, and it was like this. We says, oh, how can we not want to come to a place like this? You know, those kind of days bring us a lot of pleasure. And pleasure is something that we all like, but I I wonder if you've ever considered the fact that God experiences pleasure. That this infinite God, who's the same yesterday, today, and forever, can actually have something that, in a sense, would put a smile on his face. That would make him go, yeah, that's awesome. That would make God actually feel maybe a little bit different. And the Bible says that God does experience pleasure. And we're commanded in the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verse 10, find out what pleases the Lord. And when we're told, find out what pleases the Lord, we do that with each other. We ask, Dad, what would you like for Father's Day? Honey, what would you like to do uh, for your anniversary? Or what do you guys want to eat for dinner? I mean, we ask people all the time, what would please you? The other night when we were um, babysitting our future grandson, I told my wife, I said, how about I run down to Culver's and get you a, um, a hot fudge raspberry sundae, which I know she likes. And she says, oh, that'd be awesome. See, we know what pleases each other, but when we think about pleasing God, it often creates some anxiety in some of us. Just this whole idea of pleasing God, because some of us have had negative experiences with authority figures in our lives. It could be a boss, it could be a coach, but but most of the time it's a parent who we feel like we've never been able to quite please, never been able to satisfy. It's almost as if we work and work and work, And if they're not happy, they withhold attention from us, withhold affection from us. And so we lose the incentive to even want to try because we realize we're so disappointing. We make them so unhappy that that, that we don't even want to put the effort into trying to please them because it feels hopeless. And if if it's hopeless pleasing a parent or a boss, think what it's like pleasing God. If God's always unhappy with us, unless we measure up and perform well, Who wants to live under that pressure all the time? It's too much. And so we shy away from this idea of trying to please God. Yet you need to know that your relationship with God is not based on performance. That God's love is not conditional upon what you do or what you don't do. And I know this for a fact because the Bible says, while we were still sinners, Christ loved us. That God demonstrated his love for us while we were still sinners. And so it's not based on being good or bad. It means there's nothing you can do that's so horrible that God would love you any less than he already does. And there's nothing you can do so wonderful that God would give you more love. It doesn't work that way. God's love is unconditional. However, love is different than pleasure. Love is a commitment of what we do, of what we desire to do for somebody. For example, when a couple gets married... They commit to love each other, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health. Now, let me ask you this. If you, if you uh, got married, does that mean you always enjoy your marriage? Yes. Good answer. There was a yes over here, always. Bless you. Um, if, you need to go talk to her and most of the rest of us, because honestly, we struggle at times in those relationships. That the, the fact of a relationship may be different than the pleasure involved in the relationship. And that's why pleasing God isn't earning a relationship with Him. It's enjoying a relationship with Him. It's enjoying a relationship with you. In fact, here's what I discovered. The more you seek to please God, the more you yourself are pleased. The more joy you experience 
in your own life. And just like in a marriage relationship, yes, you committed to marriage, but there are things that annoy each other. We all have those things. You know, when I've come, if I come in the house and put books and things in the kitchen on the counter, my wife just doesn't like that. And I know that if I do it, it's going to annoy her. And if I keep annoying my wife, she doesn't have a lot of pleasure in the marriage. And, and she knows there are certain things that she does that would annoy me, that, that really don't please me much. And so when you intentionally do something to please your spouse or please someone, it says, I care enough about the relationship to do what you like and to bring joy into your life. And so we are, we are commanded to seek what pleases God. So it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, that, that we can please different people in our lives, but our goal should not be this. We're not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. It's so easy to try to be a people pleaser that if you try to please all the people all the time, you please none of the people much of the time at all because we just can't do it. If my goal as a pastor was to make everybody in this church happy, I'd be miserable because it's impossible. This person likes this style of music, this person likes the temperature this cold, and this person likes the service this long, and this person likes this much scripture used in the sermon. And, you know, it's just impossible to make everybody happy. But you know what? At the end of the day, there's one person I want to make happy. Next to my wife, I want to, no, I, I do want to make her happy. But really, at the end of the day, even in my marriage, I want to make God happy. I want to put my head on the pillow at night saying, God, I did what I believe you wanted me to do. I sought to make you happy. I sought to do things that were tough because my goal was to make you happy. And if you make your goal to make God happy, yeah, you might disappoint some people, but I say in the majority of the time, you'll make more people happier than you ever could in any other way. And that was Jesus' goal in his life. In the Gospels, in the book of John, here's what Jesus says was his personal goal. I always do what pleases him, speaking of his Father. I always do what pleases him. So that would be a great thing for us to decide to do. God, I want to be like Jesus. I mean, my goal is to be more and more like Jesus. If Jesus' goal was to please you, that should be my goal. And so for the next several weeks, we're going to look at ways we can please God, that there actually are scriptures that tell us specific things we can do that bring God pleasure. So we're going to look at those, the first one today, right after we pray. So I'm going to ask you to do this. If you would pray, just a simple prayer, that God, that, that you would want your life to be pleasing to him. But Father, we offer you our hearts, we offer you our minds, we offer you our time, our attention, our resources, all that we have. May you use it for yourself to bring you great pleasure, Father, because we know that when we make you happy, that we are ultimately happiest ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So here's where we're going today. Here's the focus of today. God is pleased when we walk with him. God is pleased when we walk with him. Now, walking with God is just a synonym for words like live and trust. It's how we express our Christian life. They're all kind of synonymous. In fact, sometimes a Bible verse may say, this is how you should live, and other times it'll say, this is how you should walk, meaning it's the same thing. Our walk is our spiritual life, our relationship with God. If there's a chapter in the Bible that explains people's relationship with God, I think Hebrews 11 is the best. Now, we're not going to read the whole chapter, but I want to read the first Six verses of Hebrews 11, because he points out an individual that's going to be the key part of our focus today. It says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. 
By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. Isn't that amazing? He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So he brings up, the author of Hebrews brings up this character named Enoch. And there's not a whole lot that the Bible says about him, but this passage says that, that Enoch was taken from this earth. He didn't experience death. And the reason was is because he was commended as someone who pleased God. That's awesome. Enoch pleased God. But how? What did Enoch do? What was different about his life? Well, you have to go back to the book of Genesis. So we're going to go backwards Book of Genesis, chapter 5. little paragraph about Enoch. Here it is, starting with verse 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. Now, some of you have heard that name before. Someone's as old as Methuselah. Methuselah lived 696 years, the oldest human that's ever lived. But it says this about Enoch. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God, 300 years, and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Enoch walked faithfully with God and then was no more because God took him away. What was so special about Enoch? Twice it's mentioned here. He walked faithfully with God. It says for 300 years, he walked faithfully with God and then God just, just, just extracted him from this earth and took him to heaven. Now, it says that when he was 65 years old, he gave birth to Methuselah. And then he lived to be 365 years. He walked with God 300 years. So if you do the math, what you realize is the author's making a point that Enoch began walking with God at the time of his son's birth. And then he, then he walked the rest of his life, and then God took him to heaven. I have found in my life and a lot of people's lives, and I don't know if this is true of Enoch or not, but... When you have kids, oftentimes you have a spiritual awakening. For one, you get to experience something that's almost godlike. God used us to create another life. And all of a sudden you realize that as I become a father to this child, God is a father to me. And how I want to have a relationship with this little person, how I want this little one to trust me, is how God wants me to trust him. And all of a sudden there's this awakening of a fresh understanding of how I am to relate to God. I am a child of God. I, I have a child. I can understand how a child relates to his father. That's how I relate to my heavenly father. But maybe also just the overwhelming responsibility. God, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to, how to raise a kid. I've never seen it really done well before, and, and I've never experienced it personally before. So I may mess up, and I don't want to ruin this life. How do I do it right? And oftentimes as parents, we realize with the enormity of raising kids that we can't do it by ourselves. It's exhausting and and, and there's a lot of pressure involved, high stakes. And so we cry out to God. It increases your prayer life. You seek God more. So I don't know if it was those things, but somehow at the birth of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God. And he walked with him the rest of his life, and God took him to heaven. So Enoch had a faith. And all the, the people in the book of Hebrews have a certain kind of faith. And it says in Hebrews chapter 11, that passage that we first read, the very beginning, Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. You need to know that at the very core of a relationship with God, the very foundation of a walk with God is this, that, that our faith is based on understanding, not sight. It is based on 
what we believe and what we know and have held on to, but not what we've seen. Because think about it. When Enoch came along, there were, there were no actual witnesses to the creation story. Nobody says, man, you should have seen what it was like when the lightning bolts hit and all these things, the mountains came up out of the... Nobody saw it. Nobody took pictures of it. It, it, the only record they had was somehow God had communicate, communicated maybe to Adam and Eve and they passed generation to generation how this planet came to be. And so along comes Enoch and he says, I can take that. I can agree with that. I can believe that. And if there's a God who made it, I want to know this God. So he believed it. Now, I know not everybody believes it because we want evidence. We want to know how it happened. And so we come up with scientific explanations that, that there was this massive goo and, and there were sparks and enzymes that came together and life was formed and this life mutated and developed and pretty soon we have animals and then plants and all these living beings all came out of nothing and all grew and, and developed and mutated and got better and better until we have you guys. You know, and, and it takes a lot of faith to believe that. It takes a lot of faith to believe that. Now, now, even Christians believe in microevolution. That means that things change, but, but, but there's no evidence of the macro kind where one animal becomes another animal or one kind becomes another kind. We don't have evidence for that, but it's a leap of faith. And I, I remember hearing one kind of famous atheist who said he even has a, 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 some belief that aliens planted life forms on this earth, the seed of life. Now, I don't know who those aliens are because we never have any of the books to tell us who they are and no pictures of these aliens, but I think it takes a lot of faith to believe that, don't you? And so it doesn't matter which view you have, everyone has to have faith. I just choose to have faith in this explanation written down through the ages by people who believe that, that God had told them how this place came to be and how we came to be. And so that's what they were commended for. They believed in something that they could not see. In fact, it says there, by faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Now, there was another man came around a little bit later than Enoch, and his name was Noah. And you know the story of Noah building this big boat. But here's a description of Noah found in chapter 6 of Genesis. Um, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. And he, guess what he did? He walked faithfully with God. So here's two individuals out of a mass of humanity, most of which have become real rebellious, real sinful. These individuals are some rare individuals who are going against the tide of culture and walking with God. What's so fascinating to me is there were no churches at this time, no evangelists at this time, no, uh, no Bibles at this time, and yet somehow they were able to walk with God. I think their walk was very simple. I think their walk consisted of Listening to God, following where he led, doing what he said, conversing with him through the day. When you think about the cultures of that day, and they didn't have all the technology and all the things that we have. You know, we have the distractions of, of radio and TV and all kinds of stuff. And, you know, when you have the stillness of the day, there's a lot of time to focus on God. And, and I believe that as these men and women would really just tune into God that God would speak to them and God would whisper to them and God would walk to them and, th and their experience with God was very real. This walk with God felt very real. And you and I are, are no different in the sense that you've never met Jesus. You've never seen Jesus in physical form. In fact, you and I believe in this miraculous story that happened almost 2,000 years ago that, that Jesus died, was buried in a tomb, rose from the dead. And there, there was one disciple named Thomas who says, I'm not gonna believe until I see it. And then when Jesus presented himself and he touched his hands and Jesus said, see, see, 
Thomas says, man, you're Lord and you're God and you're, you're everything. And Jesus said, um, Thomas, you, you are privileged because you could see this, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Blessed, happy, pleasured are those who have not seen and yet believed. And that describes you and me. We've not seen Jesus, and yet we have this person we believe in and we claim to walk with and people think we're really strange like you walk with an invisible god yeah i do like enoch and like noah like people all through history have walked with a god that they've never actually felt and touched and seen faith at its core is confidence in what you cannot see it's assurance that when you call on the name of the lord when you ask him in prayer when you trust that his promises are real that there's a confidence in that it's not a blind confidence. In fact, the confidence grows the more you see God work in your life, the more answered prayers, the more promises fulfilled. He says, I, I, I believe this. I have total confidence in this because God has come through for me again and again and again. So Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, for we live by faith, not by sight. If you're the kind of person that says, I want to see it to believe it, no, th- that's going to hurt your relationship with God because he says, it's better that you trust me because trust is developed when you cannot see, when you reach in the dark. There was one time in Jesus' ministry that a man came to him, and he was not a Jewish person. He was not a person that grew up with religious teachings, and yet he knew and trusted who Jesus was and trusted his power and authority. So this centurion uh, soldier comes to Jesus and says, I've got a servant who's ill, he's paralyzed, and I want you to heal him. And he says, all you have to do is speak the word. You don't have to go there. You don't even have to touch him. All you have to do is say the word because you're a man of authority. I know what authority is like because I'm a man of authority. I tell my soldiers, go here and there, and they do it. And all you have to do is say the word with your authority, and my servant will be healed. And you know what Jesus' response to him was? I have never seen such faith anywhere. Never seen such faith as that. That's confidence. Confidence in what you cannot see, but confidence nonetheless in a person. So Hebrews 11 reminds us of this. That the, the sixth verse says, without faith, it, it is impossible to please God. And what, he, what he's saying is, without a relationship of trust, you'll, you'll never ultimately put that joy on because God is a father who takes delight when we trust him. It's like a, it's like a father who has their little boy on the edge of the stairs and says, jump to daddy, jump to daddy. And the boy does. Does dad get mad? No, he smiles, he laughs, he cheers. He has pleasure because the child has demonstrated trust in the Father. And when you demonstrate trust in your heavenly Father, the Scripture says that he has pleasure in that. So that's what we desire, to have a relationship with God that gives him pleasure. So he talks about this walk with God in this passage. I think it's a beautiful description, a fitting description of the kind of relationship God wants to have with us. There are different words in Scripture for a relationship with God. Even In fact, one time Paul used the phrase of, um, my Christian life is like a race, and I press on, and I buff up my body, and I'm, and I'm heading toward the goal. But, but when, he, when he describes that as a race, what he's describing is, is his own personal effort. He's talking about focus and discipline. He's not talking about his interaction with God. It's really talking about his, his interaction with himself. But when, it, when our relationship with God is discussed, the word walk is used. And I love the picture of walking. Now, if you think of walking with God, we often can have two, two false views. One is that 
that God is so beautiful and so good and so perfect that if I try to walk with God, I'll always be 10 steps behind, that I'm never quite catching up to God, that, that my obedience is far behind where God wants me to be. And so there's this constant feeling of, I, I'm, I know I'm always disappointing to God because I never pray enough, I never serve enough, I never give enough, I never do all these things enough, so I've got to be pretty disappointing to God. So God's always saying, come on, Rondi, hurry up, come on. You know, we've got places to go, things to do, and I know, God, here I am. I'm sorry again, I'm sorry, God, I'm so slow, I'm sorry, I've strayed again. And we can get this view that we're always lagging behind God, but then some of us have an opposite problem in that we are charging ahead and saying, come on, God, here's where I want to go, here's what I want to do, here's the plans I want you to bless. Get moving, God, because it's not happening fast enough. And, and God allows us to do that, but then, then God watches go off into the ditch or get lost in the woods, and then God says, you know what, come on back here. Let's, let's get centered again. See, the picture the Scripture uses is with, walking with, not walking behind, not walking in front of, but walking with God, that God is a partner in this relationship. And what it really means is that this relationship is one that consists of an unbroken communion, of unbroken communion with God. When you really think about this, it, it's got to be mind-boggling. The, the God who formed the earth, who put all the stars into place, who makes the sun to shine, and all the planets to move around in their orbits, that God wants to walk with me, wants to walk with you. Doesn't that blow your mind? God, God humbles himself enough. Instead of sitting on a throne and says, get your act together, says, I'm your heavenly father, and I want you to take my hand and go on this journey together. Isn't that mind-boggling to picture God humbling himself like that? It's an incredible experience to think God would stoop down and walk with me. And anytime someone says, you want to go for a walk? You, you know that they're not asking if you want to do it by yourself, right? They're asking, do you want to go with me? And, and, and the desire is, I want to spend time with you. I want to know your heart. I want to converse with you. You may see some pretty flowers or beautiful trees or see some birds and animals on the way, but when you say, would you like to go for a walk, it, it really implies, I want to be close to you. I want to walk with you. A.W. Tozer, one of the great um, spiritual fathers of the faith, says that it's living in a state of unbroken worship that we are listening to God, worshiping God, walking with him. Now, there's a passage in the book of 2 Corinthians that I think is, is just amazing. And sometimes we just gloss over it, but really, as you think about this, an amazing passage. It's actually a quotation from the book of Leviticus and also the book of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. It, it reminds us of a time when God made a promise to the people of Israel that in the future, this is what I want to do with you, and Paul says the future is now. So here's what he says. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. And we're okay with the second part. I will be their God and they will be my people. But listen to the first part. I will live with them and walk among them. He's saying, Paul's saying to the church right now, we are the, we are the temple of God, not the building, the people. And God says, I will live with them and walk among them. That if you could see in some visible way you, that if God was present here today, you might find even during our worship service that God is walking the aisles. 
That's the image he gives us. He is walking right among us today. He's not sitting up on a cloud with a megaphone. He's walking right among us. I think it's such a a beautiful picture. In the 1600s, there was a a, a Catholic monk. His name was Nicholas Herman. Not very educated, pretty common man. Wasn't wasn't, um, knowledgeable in a lot of theology. And he struggled in his relationship with God because he often saw God as this judge and himself as a criminal. And he'd always repent of his sins and ask for God's help and plead for mercy, but it felt like he was always filthy before God. And, and he, he never felt an intimacy, intimacy with God. And he lived like this for about 10 years. He worked in a, in a monastery kitchen, cleaning pots and pans and doing dishes and cleaning up things. Not a, not a real glorious job, but he decided to approach God differently. Instead of a judge on a throne, he, he began to approach him as a father. And he began to talk to God through the day. And here's, here's what this man began to do. And by the way, over the course of time, he became known as Brother Lawrence. And he said, I determined that, to know that Monday wasn't any different than Sunday. And that my times of work were not any different than my times of prayer that he would enter into the presence of the Lord in the morning and stay there throughout the day. That even while he was doing the dishes and cleaning at work, he would thank God for the privilege. He would thank God for his strength. He would thank God for the opportunities that he had. He would ask for God's help at different moments throughout the day. This unbroken conversation went on. He would pray and just converse with God, never saying amen, never put a period at the end of the prayer until the end of the day when he went to bed at night. And he found that this was such a joyful experience to practice God this way. People began to ask him, how do you have this daily conversation with God that never ends? How do you live a life like that? Would you tell us how to do it? He says, I I just do it. I don't, it's not like a formula or anything. And, And they began to ask him to explain it. So they put his letters in this little book called The Practice of the Presence of God. It's been a Christian classic for almost 400 years. And you know what, what happened to him after living like this for next, the next, uh, I think, three decades? Th- this is how he described his own spiritual life. Remember this guy who felt like he was this filthy criminal before the judge? Now he says, The king, full of mercy and goodness, very far from chastising me, embraces me with love, makes me eat at his table, serves me with his own hands, gives me the keys of his treasures. He converses and delights himself with me incessantly in a thousand and a thousand ways and treats me in all respects as his favorite. Wow. He felt like he was unworthy. And now he says, you know, God has treated me so well. God has blessed me so so much that I must be one of his favorites. Wouldn't that be a great place for each of us to be? To have such a close walk with God that you think, you know, I, I can't imagine God spending this much time with everybody else because he's spending so much time with me. I must be one of his favorites. But you know, it's great when kids can look at their parents and each child individually says, you know, the way mom and dad spend time with me, the way they love me, I must be their favorite. But you know what? Parents that act like that probably have every child saying the same thing. And that's how God treats us. He wants us to have this unbroken communion with him, practicing the presence of God. Instead of getting this this five-hour energy boost on a Sunday morning or Bible study or small group or my morning quiet time to say, you know what, that is just one different aspect of a nonstop relationship with the Lord. That's what a walk is, a walk. Now, walking with God does require that we follow his lead. Even when two people walk together, someone is giving direction. 
You come to a fork in the road, someone indicates, hey, let's go this way or let's go that way. Someone makes some decisions, even though you're walking side by side. I'd have to disagree with the bumper sticker I saw the other day that said, dogs are people too. Because they're not. Dogs are dogs. People are people. And people aren't, aren't dogs. Dogs aren't people. And people aren't gods. And God isn't people. And so we can walk our dog, but we're not the same. And we can walk with God, and we're not the same as God. We follow his lead. We are wise to hold the hand of our Heavenly Father and say, Father, which way, right or left right here? And ask his direction. The other night I had the privilege. As, as we have a future grandson. He's about 15 months old, and he's, he's just walking now. But he came over to me the other night, and he grabbed my finger. And he didn't pull it. He just grabbed my finger. <laughs> and he wanted me to stand up because he wanted to go for a walk. So here I am walking, he's holding my fingers for, you know, stability, and we're walking around the house, we go into the kitchen, and we go out into the living room, and we went on onto the deck, and then we got over by the stairs. Now, when we got to the stairs, I changed my grip. I, I instead of him holding my fingers, I took his wrist, and he began to like thump, 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 all the way down the stairs, laughing as we went, feeling so carefree as he went down the stairs. And I thought, how much is our relationship with God like that? That when you walk with God, sometimes God says, as we're holding his hand, God, can we go over here? And God says, that's okay over there. God, can we do this? That's pretty good over there. But when we get to places of danger, God says, you know what? Since you're holding on to me, I'm going to hold on to you a little bit tighter here. And the Bible says, Jesus said in John chapter 10, that when you, when you hear his voice and follow him, when you cling to the Lord, that nothing can snatch you out of his hand. But see, we also have the opportunity, if we choose, to say, I don't want to hold your hand. I don't want to walk with you. And that's why we find ourselves in sin, find ourselves in a ditch, and find ourselves in a hole and say, God, would you bail me out? And God says, okay, I didn't want you to go there, but you let go of my hand. I'm going to reach down there and lift you out, and we're going to get back on track now. We let God take the lead. Jesus chose his disciples to be with him, to learn to walk with him for three years. Learn, learn. They didn't follow a certain manual. They just learned to walk with Jesus, just learned to do what he did and love what he loved and minister as he ministered. And after three years, Jesus says, I've got to go, and I'm going to go on, but I'm going to send to you another one who's much like me. But the advantage, of, advantage is he'll be in many places at once. And he's called the Holy Spirit. And the Greek word for Holy Spirit is the word parakletos. In the Greek... The primary definition of parakletos is this. This is the definition of the Holy Spirit. One called to the side of another. One called to the side of another. What Jesus was saying is, I am sending one who will be your partner, called to your side, and he will teach you, and he will comfort you, he will counsel you, he will strengthen you, he will give you wisdom, he will do all the things you need as he walks with you through this journey. And so the Holy Spirit is our guide in fact, many of us have a relationship with God that's very profoundly influenced by the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives. That is God's presence right here to help us to learn to walk, to prompt us, to nudge us, to whisper to us. And if you want to read a lot about the Holy Spirit, um, read Galatians chapter 5, and it talks about the fruit of the Spirit and a lot of things the Holy Spirit does. In that fifth chapter of Galatians, Paul tells believers, so I say, walk by the Spirit, or some Bibles say live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And then a few verses later, down in verse 25, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So there's that picture, keep in step with the Spirit. We're walking with Him, He's whispering to us, He's holding our hand, listen to Him, walk with Him. Follow His lead. He'll lead you into great areas of life. 
Well, there's one other area of this walk that I want to focus on, and that is what Micah says. It says that we should have humility in our walk with God. It necessitates humility. Micah 6, 8. The prophet tells the nation of Israel, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and then to do this, to walk humbly with your God. What does that mean to walk humbly with your God? You know what I think it means? I think it means that your walk with God is something that's pretty private, pretty personal. And it's not really something to brag about. You know, I, don't th- I, th- I think you should love your spouse. You should love them wholeheartedly. You should share some things that you do. But ultimately, your relationship is pretty intimate, pretty private. And I think our relationship with God oftentimes needs to be kept pretty private. You know, I, I had planned in this sermon to actually get to this point and say, you know what? I've been doing these things for the last several years, and they've helped me have a close walk with God. I was going to share how I have a morning time where I study the Bible, and I write things down, and how I have a prayer journal I write, and how I have a a life journal, kind of a diary with God, and how that helps me to have a close relationship with God. But then it dawned on me that, that, that I'm trying to prescribe a relationship that works for me and may not work for everybody else. And that'd be pretty arrogant of me to think that one size fits all. Because if, if you're in any relationship, you know that you relate to people differently. How you relate to mom is probably different than how you relate to dad. And how you relate to one kid is different than how you relate to someone else. And how I relate to God may be very different than how you relate to God. And sure, there are things like devotional books and morning prayer times and uh, journaling and fasting and all these things that someone says, you know, you need all these things to have a great relationship with God. But sometimes we get overwhelmed. It's kind of like if you go to a marriage conference and they say, you know, at the end of every day, grab a cup of coffee or tea and sit down after the kids go to bed and have a conversation about your day with your spouse and then have prayer together and that'll make a great marriage. You go, you know what? We don't do that. We must not have a good marriage. Do you know how you can tell you have a really good marriage? Do you know how you know if your marriage is going really well? Ask your spouse. (laughs) Really. Isn't that the end of the day? Isn't that just the bottom line is, because you can do all these practices and still have a miserable marriage, but at the end of the day, you, you can say, honey, do we have a good marriage? Yeah, we really do. I mean, we must be doing something right. We must be doing something that works for us. And it works for us, and that's the key. So I'm going to ask you, what works for you in your relationship with God? Because Jesus made this promise that whoever hungers and thirsts for righteousness will be filled. See, I think, and I was, I was searching with Enoch thinking, oh, if, if we would only know what Enoch did in his walk with God, if we really knew the structure of his day, if we knew what tools and disciplines Enoch had, then we could know how to imitate and have a walk with God. And I think God deliberately chose not to give it to us. But I have to, I have to remember this. Before, before our daily bread was written, before you version ever came out, before there were ever church services, Enoch had a walk with God. And all these other things may assist your walk with God, but at the core, they're not what makes your walk with God. It's a hunger within that says, God, I need you. I need you every moment of every day in my life. And I thank you for all that you're doing. I need you for all that needs to be done. See, a relationship with God is not a disciplined event, but a daily experience. Because in a little while, we're all going to leave this building. And some of you might feel like, well, that was a good church service. I can't wait till next week. Because that's when I get to really get close to God, and I'd be so disappointed if that was your response. And some of you may feel, I can't wait till morning because in the morning I have this half hour of time of prayer and study with God and then I go off to work and, and I look forward to the next morning when I can be with God. But what if you approached it this way? That every moment was a moment with God. 
Whether you're at work, whether you're at home, whether you're in a church building, whether you're out in nature, whether you're with a crowd of people or by yourself, what if you, like Brother Lawrence, had this unbroken fellowship with God? What if that described your walk with him? So for some of you, that's like a totally foreign concept. You become so tied into the rituals and the practices and think that's what constitutes a relationship, but it isn't. It's a hunger of the heart to know and love God, hear his voice, and do what he says. And for many of us, it just begins with a step. See, a walk is always forward moving. It's not a, not a leap, it's just a step. And for some of you, that's all you need today is the next step. And so we're gonna have a time of prayer I'm going to ask if our prayer partners would come up front here, if you all would stand, and uh, we're going to sing. And we're going to invite you to come up. And if it's, it's the initial place of your walk with the Lord where you say, God, I need you. I've missed it. I've tried to be real religious, and I've tried to do these religious things, but I know I'm not in my heart connected to you. I want to be connected. I want to know you. I want to walk with you. I want to know that I'm delighting you. If that's where you are today, we invite you to come up. And maybe you found yourself straying today. Maybe you found yourself lost in a place where you need to come back to God and see him for who he is, a heavenly father who loves you infinitely, who loves you no matter what you've done or what you will do, but who wants to take delight in you as you trust him. So if we can pray over you as we surrender ourselves individually to Jesus, come up here. We'd love to pray over you. Whatever God is calling you to do, let's come and pray. Thanks for listening to today's message. Be sure to join us again next time.